Welcome to this Business of Music and Poetry podcast, where the life of a creative meets the real world. I'm Michael Amade, host of World Poetry Open Mic, the Michael Amade Show, author of more books than I should mention, poet, musician, and above all, creative entrepreneur. My collaborator and conspirator on this project is Clifford Brooks, founder of the Southern Collective Experience, host of Dante's Old South on NPR, poet, the author of The Draw of Broken Eyes and Whirling Metaphysics, Exiles of Eden, and Athena Departs, A Gospel of a Man Apart. Our guest today is Jack Bidell. Jack Bidell is professor of English and coordinator of creative writing at Southeastern Louisiana University, where he also edits Louisiana literature and directs the Louisiana Literature Press. His latest collections are Elliptic, Revenant, and No Brother, This Storm. His work has appeared in the Southern Review, Radar Poetry, The Fourth River, Terrain.org, Construction, Grist, Sugar House, Shenandoah, Pigeonholes, Cotton Xenomorph, and other journals. As Louisiana Poet Laureate from 2017 to 2019. Without any further ado, here's our interview with Jack Bidell. Tonight, we have poet and professor Jack B. Bidell with us to talk about his book, No Brother This Storm, uh, his career, his objectives in life, and tell us all about who he wants to be when he grows up. Jack, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Cliff, man. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on, dude. Um... Tell us about where you teach and uh, the creative writing program there. I teach at Southeastern Louisiana University. It's in Hammond, Louisiana, which is kind of on the interstate between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. And uh, I've been here about 27 years. We have a really nice size university, about 17,000, but our department is really small. We've got a creative writing program of about two dozen people. And I teach the, the poetry classes primarily, but I get my hands on the prose writers from time to time just for kicks but it's a it's a nice program nice laid-back program we offer a master's degree no mfa and the students are very interested uh, and we turn some of them on to the point where they want to go off and get a phd or an mfa somewhere and and that's about the the happiest part of what i do it's it's the the care that i see in the in the way you write poetry um the 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 way you tell stories um they they convey a um, almost prose-like quality of of description, and I, and I was what it makes me want to ask is, and I guess what I'll do: Have you ever written prose of any kind of short stories or essays? You know, I I was coerced by Bill Harrison, who was one of my teachers at University of Arkansas when I was getting my MFA, coerced into taking a fiction workshop and sat in with them. I resisted it and resisted it because I told them I'd never written any prose other than just kind of critical articles I had to do for class. And he coerced me into it. And so I locked myself up and wrote a short story. And uh, when it when it came my turn in the workshop, he just said, listen, Jack, I appreciate you coming, man, but we don't have to do this one. And he just <laughs> threw it off on the side. And I took that as my cue to stick, stay in my lane. <laughs> Jack, I feel like I just stabbed you in the eye, brother. I'm so sorry. That's, no, not that's at all. It confirmed. That's a horrible, that's a horrible no, it story. confirmed my urge. You know, I, I went to school on a, a music scholarship. I was a percussionist, an all-state percussionist, and 
And what got me interested in writing was the rhythm of poetry. Right. And I, I don't have that when I write prose. And I, and I really, honestly, I feel like I'm throwing words out in the street when I'm writing a <laughs> sentence. Uh, so uh, it, it's just pristine to write a poem and, and really taking, give, having that experience was perfect for me because it let me know that all my fears and insecurities were not fears and insecurities. What they were was exact self-realization. So I'm this, good with it. This is uh, this has already become my favorite interview thus far, Jack. I mean, we're we're going to hang out and be friends after this. Um, so I mean, again, that opens oh, that opens up so many topics. Um. One of those that I want to hit on first is, is I'm, I'm being serious when I say this, when you when you say, like, that's not just my paranoia. That was someone telling me right up front, this is not what you need to do. This is not your bag. Um, in creative writing, creative writers, um, that can be, obviously, uh, this may be stating the obvious, kind of a hard pill to swallow. Um, but the, the way you phrase it is that, at least the way I took it, is that it kind of, it sets you free to focus completely on poetry. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I had done everything I could do to tell the man that that wasn't my bag. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like I went in with any aspirations or ambitions. I, I went in thinking uh, this isn't my thing. But after a weekend of working on a story, I'd kind of convinced myself, like every writer does, that, hey, you know, this ain't half bad. And <laughs> and that's that's the real problem that it's a little bit like getting dressed up for a date. I think you can you can you can convince yourself you look a little better than you do. And, right, uh, right. Until you see the disappointment in her face, and it's like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, or you see her looking at somebody else, and then <laughs> then you realize that somebody else has got their turn around the table and not you. And exactly. that's that's how I felt. So. And it, it it's you know it 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 refocused things, and then you know, of course there's a there's a freedom that comes with you know knowing what is your bag, but. Um, the way that you were able to take that that critical input, you know, the constructive criticism, uh, with with writing and, and uh, with actually, I mean, you know, with being a teacher of writing, how can writers better process creative criticism and not get so hurt about it? Well, my main message to my students is, uh, other than the fact that we're all in this together, that this isn't something I'm telling you from on high that I. You know, I've got all this stuff down and I'm telling you what you're doing wrong is that we're all in it together. I'm discovering every day how to get this done right on the page. And the stuff I thought was right is, you know, I realized two days later it was it couldn't have been more wrong. So that's the first thing is that we're all in it together and we're all on a process. We're in a process on a road somewhere. And that's probably the second thing I would say that I try to communicate to my students. We have to work from the given that this, whatever this writing is that you've done, it's on its way to becoming. It's not what it, if you, if we all go in thinking it's finished, then we're going to get hurt feelings. But if we go in thinking this is just on the way to becoming something and nothing's done till it's done, then every little bit of advice is helpful. Every little bit of, of guidance is helpful. If for no other reason to try it out and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we move on. I mean, Heck, that, that's my goal in parenting, too. I mean, my, my folks have both passed away, and I'm still every day waking up trying to be a better son. And I, I tell my sons and my daughter every day, I'm going to give you advice from the heart, and some days it's going to be awful advice. And if you're able to recognize it as awful advice, more power to you and, <laughs> and make the right choice for yourself. And, and that's kind of how I treat my classes like you. Listen, you're gonna. When I tell you something that I think that I feel about your writing, 
it's either going to make you immediately get defensive, and that's a good sign because that means I'm scratching close to the, to the wound there, or it's going to make you think, oh, I should have done that from the beginning. And when you hear that, then that's, that's some truth. That's the ring of some truth. Anything in between is completely useless and let it roll off you. I, I absolutely agree. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I, I've, I've joked before that I don't, I don't think the word nice means, um, what it used to in the, and no, not trying to go off too far on a tangent, but when you'd hear like, well, okay, well, they need to work on this, but be nice and don't say that, you know? And, and to me, like I said, it, it made me think of that when you mentioned, you know, anything between those two truths, that either scratch the surface or make you wish you'd done it that way to begin with is pointless. You know, that's the opposite of, of nice. And so um, to, 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 to maintain a, a secure, safe environment for your students to, to talk about each other's work, does, you know, is that, is that kind of a mantra you keep chanting to them? Don't take it personally, just hear it out. You know, is, is it, do you find that you, um, maybe in the beginning with your classes, you had to do a little bit more, but as you go along, if kids get to know each other, that, that kind of mellows out? That's it exactly. We, I, I beg them right in from the outset. I mean, I, it, it's tough to ask a favor the first second that you meet somebody. But when I meet a class, the first favor I ask them is, man, we got to make family here and we got to do it fast. We, right. don't, we don't have much time because the only way we build anything is through togetherness and trust and, and community. And we got to build it quick because otherwise we're not going to trust each other. We're going to discount each other. So it is about realizing we're in here to talk about the work and we're all moving forward and it's all productive and there's no gra there's, there's nothing in here that has anything personal to do with anybody and if we let that stuff come in here then it, it's not productive for anybody so that's kind of my job as the instructors to make sure that we stick to productive things and some of that is praising people some of that's just telling you know, what, what it might be like if we had written a story or what we might need to, uh, some things as readers we might need to express to the writer. But, right. I mean, a good bit of it is just the heart in it, man. It's just trying to really honestly do what's right for the people around the table in the same way that we would do if if we were family. We would right. do our best to, to help each other. It's not always going to work, but we're going to really come from a place of doing our best to get to get each other into a better spot, to get each other to progress. And that's, that's all you can do. And, and some, not, some semesters it works and some semesters we get sidetracked by, by people. Cause I mean, like anything in life, there's folks that just don't want, they don't want to play and right. they're in it for themselves. And, uh, I played team sports mo most of my life and there's been teammates like that, that can't, they don't care if you break your neck as long as they get their numbers. And right. And there's people like that in class too, and you just got to either work around those people or, or kind of put up with them till they move on to another team. And that's, and everyone, everyone in my class is aware that's my feelings, and that's how I go. And works with some, and it doesn't work with some. So hopefully, I work with more. I'm, I'm positive to more students than I'm negative. Now, when we talk about, you know, how how you take criticism and how do you, you know, again, I want to back up to the the, the beginning of the of where your poems are born. Now you've already said that you started out in music and that makes perfect sense to me now. You know, how does music factor into your creative process when you sit down to work? Well, I probably went off to college as a real strict formalist and, and I didn't really have an understanding outside of scanning the stuff for, for beats, what that meant, but it was real formulaic. And I, and 
kind of kind of eroded out of me in Arkansas, even though all my teachers were formless. They let me know that I could be a little more rhythmic, and I kind of morphed into a to talking about prosody, just somebody that that cared about line length and how natural it was for me. And and so as a percussionist, it's really easy for me to find the rhythm in the accents and a line and to stay consistent in that, to find time and keep it. So like, you know, a studio drummer, we talk about being in the pocket. Yeah. And, and yeah. in a poem, I'm able to find the pocket in the line length that I'm going to use to execute a story because every story can't be told with the same pacing, nope. mainly because what you put in the attention on some things can be quickly drawn and some things have to span four or five lines. And, and I think that's what really helped me from particularly about being a drummer is that I can, I can find that rhythm and, and kind of ride with it where I don't have to worry about counting things or adding up the math of it. That that's not necessary. A, a, a good percussionist isn't really, you know, once you know the time signature, man, you, you don't need somebody counting a seven for you every time. You get, you get right. a feel, you get a feel for the seven, eight, you get in there and get it. Um, and that's kind of how poems work for me. I'm blessed in the sense that, that since the time I was four and I had hand, and I had got handed sticks, uh -huh. I was, uh, I've had that as part of my life. So it's, you know, it, it's kind of carried over into my poems a good bit. I think How that, do you feel? That's, that's, no, 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 all right. Okay. So, uh, so coming from another musician who writes poetry as well, who started at four, very early age, uh, I've had the exact same experience. So it's really, it's, it's good to hear somebody who also has had that, who has the same experience of being able to really feel and kind of, you've spent so much time with rhythm. You've spent so much time with feel and it, you don't have to overthink it. You you know how to place the syllables. You know how to keep a meter and how to keep a tempo and and to vary it as it needs to go. Uh, do you find a lot of poet are a lot of poets really thinking about that, or is that something that uh, you think is an area that a lot of poets could pay attention to in order to grow? I run into people all the time that have beautiful instinct in that respect, but they don't think of it in terms of rhythm or beat or or they don't really understand how when you scan a line you're looking for the accents and how the accents play against each other and make cadences and things. They, they instinctively grasp that. Uh, I mean, Jericho Brown is a great example of that. Who's a new Orleans, uh, who's a Louisiana writer, new Orleans writer. Uh, he's actually from North Louisiana, but he came down here and studied He's a great national poet right now, but his rhythms, I think are very instinctive, not trained musically, very instinctive, brilliant ma manager of rhythm. And then I, I run into another type of poet that is going to stick to the math of the line <laughs> no matter what. And it makes for very, it, it's in lyric poetry. I think it, it's okay. You can, you can do that. But in narrative poetry where the story itself has a rhythm, man, that's disjoining to, uh, to, to come across somebody. Uh, James Dickey always talked about writers having 10 ears and uh like and you know like uh, i think he even referred to Jarrell as having a 10 ear and so he used metrics appropriately and and very well but it didn't scan against his stories that he was telling and i think that's a that's the hallmark of a great storyteller is the you you can sense the pull and drag of it all without even having to worry about okay well that's been 5 minutes or okay well that's been 11 minutes and uh, so those I think those two types of poets, uh, they don't cohabitate very often. It's usually one or the other. And I, and I do run into a good bit of both types. Great answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely can say that. Cliff, what were you going to ask? 
Oh no. Um, I want to know about No Brother the Storm. Um, how how did this book come to be? In that, uh, did it come to your mind? Like, I want to I want to lay it down in this sequence, even though you didn't know maybe the exact poems yet, or maybe not even written. But did you kind of have a span in mind of what you wanted to cover with this one? If you ask me that about any other book I've written, I would have no idea. It, the strange thing about this book, No Brother of the Storm, is I can remember the exact moment that the idea for the book came to me. My my brother, who's uh, 10 years older, isn't a really talkative person. I mean, we love each other greatly. We spend so much time together. But even when we were in a duck blind or we were in a boat, we didn't exchange words. That's not what we were there. We were just there together. And he doesn't text me all that often, doesn't text me pictures all that often, but he texted me a picture of open water. And I asked him, what the heck are you sending me that picture for? What is that? And he said, that's the point. And I thought, well, I thought, is he trying to make a point or was it? And then he said, no, that's the point, which was a landmass we used to use to, uh, to navigate from our family camp. We knew when we mm-hmm. hit that, when we hit the point, we took a left. And that's how we got to the back marsh off the bayou, off the salt, salt water. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was open water, man. It was a landmass 20 years ago that was big enough to have buildings built on it. And the picture he sent me of that place was open water waves, not a, not a blade of grass in sight. Mm. And that's when it hit me because you, you know the news. You know we're losing multiple football fields a day down here on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana to, to coastal erosion. But until he showed me that picture, I don't think it was an emotional issue for me. It was just an intellectual issue of something I hope we'd get better or hope we'd find an answer for. And and it, when I saw that and how quickly the, the parts of my past were going away completely, it hit a chord in me. And I, I set about writing some poems about coastal erosion and loss of wetland here in South Louisiana. And it became the focus of the book. I wanted to write a book about the personal aspects of of how do we live through this loss. Uh, unfortunately, some bad things happened, and the book kind of got hijacked. But uh, it all <laughs> it all came back together. But that was the original intent. The original intent was I want to write a book about not the intellectual idea of wetland loss or coastal erosion, but personal loss about uh, personal loss that I've experienced that I'm looking at and how do we live past it because we have to find beauty in life no matter what when we get on the other side of this right that uh, if we can't stop it we got to find a way to find beauty in life and we have to find a way to love our life and to live our life no matter what but given that we can still maybe try to find some ways to abate this stuff or to restore this stuff and that and that was the original plan for the book was to offer those kind of alternatives to just ruminating or just being sad about, oh, man, we losing all this stuff. It's all gone. But how do we live past it? How do we find beauty on the other side of it? How do we restore some of it? And that, that was the plan. Well, are there, are there any topics that you left out of No Brother This Storm that you want to pick up in, on in other books? I mean, was, was there, were there kids you had to leave behind before yeah. you come back? And get, uh, what, what did that look like? Well, really, what I, I had the middle third of the book written thinking it was going to be the whole book, and uh, my mom passed away suddenly without any warning at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, just went in for a routine procedure, routine blood work, and uh, three days later was gone. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I had to 
I hit the pause button on that. And the only poems that were coming up were poems about my mom. And I tried to keep those separate. But what what happened eventually was I realized that, that they were all poems about loss and that these these ideas weren't going to separate themselves. Right. And I, I kind of uh, shifted focus off the coastal erosion and, and that kind of loss to loss in my own family and and how I could see eventually that you know that was something I was going to have to find the beauty on the other side of too once I, I dealt with all that and I started trying to work those poems together with the with the third part of the book uh, no brother the storm the the fable part of it mm-hmm. and I think what it caused was it left a bunch of poems about the wetland loss what uh, wetland loss and coastal erosion unwritten because I, I got distracted or hijacked by those broadening of the topic and in the next collection i've got coming out next year color all maps new i think i continue on finished writing those poems but i will say the one thing that's different about the character of the poems in color all maps new is that i'm not so desperate to find those answers on the other side i'm a little more determined to find them in the poems and and i'm a little more specific about what we need to see where what that beauty is we're going to find on the other side i saw i'm coming i'm coming at that same idea of the of coastal erosion from a much more positive outlook and and uh and i I think healthier outlook too after all that now there's a great deal there's a great deal to unpack in that and i want to start with you talk about how you know as you as you've grown and it felt like, I mean, here's what I what I think you said is that, you know, it, where you were raw emotionally and dealing with these and, and getting it out just to get it, you know, you had to get it out first, you know, that as you grow and you, you found calm and you found strength, you found and saw that brighter side. You know, all of this tends to, it leans to me to show this whole process of not just creativity, but but healing. And, and maybe this is a tired subject to touch on, but you know, as far as the restorative healing factors of writing poetry as you came to terms with the how do you dealt with the 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 coastal erosion and the loss of your mom did what was the therapeutic process that the the, your poetry the writing of it played into your um rebirth as it were it's just mainly the the poems are a search i know something positive is there i know there's beauty there i mean that's my outlook on life you know my might've mentioned to you in the past that my new year's resolution is the same every year. It's find the good in the day. Yeah. And I know it's there, man. It's not like invent the good in the day. The good in the day is there. It's all around me. It's in my family. It's in the place I live. It's in the food I eat. It's everywhere. And so the poems are an opportunity for me to search, find it out and celebrate it. And I think that in doing that over and over again through the kind of topic of loss, I, I reached some security in it. I reached some s- certainty. It wasn't such a desperate thing of let me find it, let me find, you know, like you've lost your keys and you got to find them, can't go to yeah. and find your keys kind of thing. Yep. Yep. That's kind of how I felt writing the pro- poems in No No Brother of the Storm. I felt like I'd lost something. I had to find it before I went to bed. And I think by the time I got around to writing the second set of poems for a book I got coming out next year, uh, I had the keys. I, I just needed to celebrate finding them. And that's <laughs> oh, kinda, man, that's, that's awesome. where I went. Yeah, I love that. I love how you said that, man. I, can I ask you to read a poem? Sure, absolutely. Um, 
It's on page 52. It's uh, Pierre Papineau. Could you tell us about that one and read it for us? Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things that, that we get in Cajun culture in South Louisiana is is we have our roots in, in Acadia, in Nova Scotia. The bloodlines came down here with the original Cajuns, but and the names came down with them, and the music came down with them, language came down with them. But one thing that's funny is their folktales didn't make it down our way. Pear Papineau is a Nova Scotian folktale of kind of like a, like the Baba Yaga, like a boogeyman that kids were told. We were told Lugaru stories, like uh, werewolf stories, and before we went to bed to tell us that, hey, the Lugaru's coming for you. You were bad today. Uh. So keep, you know, keep your hands and feet over the bed. Don't let, don't let it get your toes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these, these Acadian kids were told these pair Papano stories as, uh, to teach them lessons about life, that this is the, out there, there. There is bad things out there. There's, there are things out there that you can't trust, and uh-huh. that's what Pe- that's where Pe- Papano comes in. Right. It's a little three three movement piece, three uh, three short movements. Pe- Papano. Mm-hmm. One. The old man should not be met at water's edge. He'll come inland, follow you back home, hungry. Always leave him to his thoughts. The herons cry. Two. Wanderer. No bog or hollow the old man hasn't crossed. His hunger pulls him around, bottomless, ready to consume a man's weight. Never try to feed his demands or give him reason to cast spells. There's not enough rice in the field nor chickens in the coop to fill the hole in his gut. Do not confuse his wanting with need. Three, the nature of the marsh is to take things in, interlace water and reed, heat and sound, stranger and friend. The old man, though, is Dogri, and we're all mullet in his world. What draws me, awesome, awesome job. And I, let me just, I, this is what I, I almost dropped this ball, but back, about talking about the tin ear. And uh, I've never heard you read your poetry, so now having you heard you, I'm, you read it with melody and inflection, and with um, practice, and that's awesome because, and maybe I'm not understanding this, but when, when also what, when I thought ten ear is that uh, the importance of of reading your poetry well to convey what it is that you want it to say um, is almost it is an art form unto itself. Uh, and with when I hear, I'm always kind of let down when I hear someone read their poetry. It's not that I didn't, you know, you know. It, pronounce it that way or put stresses that way it's that it comes out monotone or like you're hearing a speaking spell remember those things you know so i mean how do you do you read your poetry aloud yourself to practice for readings to get such a smooth delivery not not at all i i really i was taught to read to the punctuation by my teachers in in grad school and not be one of those poets that hang out at the end of the line to try to add some profundity to it Right. And so I really try to stick as close since it's written in the language that I'm that I use in my head. I try right. to stick as close to a spoken word and, and let the story control the pace of the line and the words, because uh, if the individual rhythms of the lines take over, then you get kind of that that sing songy to dip to dip stuff. And yeah, I I, I don't want to be. I, I don't want anything to take focus away from the story I'm trying to tell or from the 
you know, from the images I'm trying to, to create. So I definitely don't want my voice or any kind of mannerisms in the way I'm speaking to, to, uh, to distract anybody that's hearing it. So that's my main thing is to, to hope nobody even notices that they're just listening to it and they don't know that I'm in the room kind of thing. That's kind of, if I have to practice anything, it's fading back into the woodwork. <laughs> well, it seems like there's you've you've got a bit of a, a background of kind of growing up with stories. In fact, one time you you actually mentioned that uh, that the, your family told stories as you were growing up, like Bible stories and things. You you even said, which I thought was an interesting statement. I was doing research here. You said even your father, who wasn't much for talking, told stories through the dog. Could you explain <laughs> that? Talk about yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Well, my old, I love my old man. Um, and it must have just hurt him like scalding water to tell us anything that we had done well. <laughs> and uh, anytime, you know, if I had thrown a good ball in the game, uh, like, com- you know, completed a pass, he didn't think I could complete. Uh, that that night later on after when we were watching some show on TV, he'd tell the dog, old Jack did, did a good job today. And he'd tell the dog the story of the play. And I, I learned to pick up all those compliments uh, through the filter of the dog. That's pretty right? interesting. But yeah. He also told. He also taught lessons through through that too. I mean, so we had to learn from the dog. The dog made the dog made <laughs> lots of bonehead mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and and that dog caught hell every night. Oh, so, um, so there was benefits to it too because we didn't get directly chewed out you know the dog the dog took it all for us but the dog didn't seem to mind dog slept a lot <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a pretty that's a pretty uh that's a pretty fascinating childhood kind of memory there and i i could see where um and, and maybe this isn't a tie that that is so obvious but i could see where hearing things verbally communicated that way including things about you being communicated to you through an offset uh you know being really could actually can inform a little bit about how you uh, create, how you write, and how you develop the language of the piece. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. And, and as a kid, our job was to just kind of stay quiet and, and not get noticed. And yeah. so all we did, I mean, my folks, they, they were always throwing some kind of fado dough or, or crab ball or crawfish ball. There was always something going on on the street. And the most fun I had as a child was listening because, you know, pop a couple of beers and a few beers in and man, the stories would fly. And we would just (laughs) sit under the table and listen to those people make fools of themselves telling these stories and cracking on each other. And my mom was the best at it. My mom, (laughs) mom, she never forgot a story about anybody. And and being in an area where, you know, family had lived for forever and none of the friends left so it was all really close-knit uh they could crack each other man that's the, the closer the family the the, the <laughs> yeah. sharper the stories and and that's that's i did i grew up listening to people tell stories and my parents were both kind of uh, i was an indirect learner my parents were both kind of shy about lecturing me so i had to listen closely to the parables and i had to listen closely to what the dog was hearing <laughs> uh, to to pick up any of it, and it really did to teach me. I think how to couch some message messages in uh, in plain language. Wow, 
Wow. And and now you mentioned playing drums from an early age or or having sticks put in your hand. What was the you know what was the story around that? Well, I wanted more than anything to be a saxophone player, and I don't remember why. I don't remember if there was somebody on TV that I saw that looked cool playing saxophone, or if it was something. I don't know if maybe one of the kids on one of the guy, kids on Happy Days played sax, but uh, but I wanted a sax, and my dentist gave my mom a note saying this kid's going to look like a soccer fish. If you hand him a wind instrument <laughs> that his teeth aren't going to hold up to that. He's going to, he's going to be like my old man used to say, he can corn through a picket fence. And, <laughs> All uh, right. So, so I got drumsticks at, uh, to, to kind of, cause I was bugging him. I get, I got on that bone. I wouldn't let it go about learning the musical instrument early, early, early on. And so, they handed me drumsticks and sent me off to drum lessons at, at four years old. And, uh, it was, it wasn't the sax, but I learned to love it. Now, did you, so you, did you stick with lessons that whole time from four years old on to college? I stayed with lessons until I went to, I guess we started school band around, uh, fourth grade, okay. fifth grade fifth grade so i stayed in lessons until about fifth grade and then no then the, my folks said well they're paying that band director to teach you now ah. and i didn't have another lesson until i got to college and then uh, uh being on scholarship we had to take individual lessons with uh with a percussion instructor and so uh so it was a good gap a good gap of you know eight or nine years where i wasn't taking lessons but sure. i had a good base good good fundamental base from going to lessons like that and uh, thinking back on it, how miserable it was to drag that big snare drum down the aisle of the school bus. <laughs> uh, it, you know, thinking back on it, it was so worth it. I, you know, I was I was on drum line in high school too, and uh, boy, I can sure remember having to carry that stuff around. And just what a pain it was. So then, of course, I played bass for fun. So now I got to carry the bass amp and this huge bass guitar around too. You know, it's not quite the same, but it's close. No, and it's always a poor rhythm section. We always had to, and I, you know, I gigged in bands till my children were born. And man, nobody scared, <laughs> nobody gets more scarce than a front man and a guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> man, yeah. they are drinking hand and out of there like the wind. And so yeah. the bass player and the drummer is always loading, uh, loading amps and that's true. And you know, all the pedals and the everything, and then all of my equipment I had to load. So. It was, uh, there's nothing worse than a front man. I said, yeah, the, the front, and I've been a front man too, but I, I once heard a joke saying the front man and all the girls leave and then the rest of the musicians have to pull everything down. Right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And none of us can really imbibe because we, we got to, we got to earn the money. The front man just has to dance and <laughs> exactly. you know, twirl well, around a little bit. Well, Jack, Jack, you, you've, you've kind of taken that front man spot with your writing though, hadn't you? Not, not, by, not by choice. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm still back. On. No, I'm still back behind the kid. I don't, uh, as a writer, I don't like being the 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 uh, center of. I don't like the spotlight finding it back there. But uh, the the book might be the book might right. be the front man. But uh, the poems find their own mic microphone out there. But no, I'm still back behind the kid, doing the work. Now, who are the poems? This may be kind of a generic. But I love this one anyway. Who are some of the poets that uh, inspired you? And who are the poets that you think are not getting enough? attention whether they're alive or dead like that, that's on your top three or five the the first poet that i was handed it was actually a teacher that was kind of kind enough to tell me how bad everything i was writing was handed me a book by rs Gwynn, who's a texas a formalist uh, 
writer from Texas, and he's got a book called At the Drive-In, and that's the book I was handed to kind of teach me what a contemporary narrative poem was. Right. And I fell in love with that book. Uh, R.S. Gwynn, Sam Gwynn's poems are flawless. I mean, he's a, he is a great tactician when it comes to metrical stuff, but also he can tell a joke and he can tell a story about cooking barbecue or about going to the drive-in with his folks or about pitching a baseball that really, really uh, showed me how it could get done. Uh, and his poems led me right into James Dickey. And, and really, if I had to give a dollar back for every time I cop something off Dickey's uh, 57 to 67 poems, man, that would be worse than college debt. Because <laughs> uh, everything I know about telling a story in 24 lines, I learned off James Dickey's poems. And really, it's it's tremendous influence on my life reading those poems. And uh, and I really, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my teachers, Heather, Heather Ross Miller, who taught me at Arkansas, and Jim Whitehead and Miller Williams. The, their, their poems and their guidance is really what, I, their voices are the voices I hear when I sit down to write. And then if I write, if I type a word and it falls off the page, um, I, they're telling me about it the whole time. So, you know, they, they're those, those are my influences, I think, that it really kind of all mixed together to make the jambalaya. That's my, that's my poems. But uh, man, there's so many poems out. To, there's so many poets out today. The beauty of Twitter yeah. is, man, we're one click away from new worlds of writers. Uh, I mean, the people, the writers that I run across uh, every single day and, you know, fall off into the kind of hole of their writing is is just mind-blowing. You know, I, I, I don't think a day goes by that I don't discover three poets that I, I fall in love with these days and thanks, thanks to social media. Let me segue into that because um, social media plays – a significant role in in one's literary career, and you have those who hate it and those who see it for the positive tool that it is. I like, I enjoy, and uh, and and see the pitfalls of it. But if you stay shy of those, how do you feel about you know? Again, you've already said that you like Twitter. I mean, do you see the 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 good or the bad? Like, how do you feel about social media and, and what we do? There, there's a greatness to it in the sense of building community, I think that we find each other so quickly now in ways that uh, it could happen in a library and poking around or in literary journals and poking around, but there, it's it was so slow in those days that, uh, you know, it was, almost, it was almost impossible that it was so slow and there's no real connection. I mean, I wrote a letter to, I can remember uh, the first time I read a David Bottoms poem, I sat down and wrote a letter to him. But who knows if he ever got it? I mean, you're just sending that to you see he teaches at uh, Georgia State, so you just mail it to Georgia State. Now who knows? Uh, but now I we, people interact all the time. I mean, I write, you know, I'll, I'll send a tweet, shoot a tweet off to somebody, tell them I saw your poem in uh, in a journal, and it knocked my socks off, and then get a, go back and forth, and the next thing you know, you're yeah, there is a connection there. So I would say definitely the the speed with which we're able to build community as as like-minded you know, folks is is a blessing. But but that community can turn quick too. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, brother. It, it doesn't take much to uh, to step off into it. And I I try my best to stay out of that stuff. But it's tough when you when you see people you would consider friends going at each other to not 
try to mediate, but like anything, man, the referee always gets slapped. Always. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is. I mean, what I've learned to do is like, the, I, I will call one of them like off the grid and be like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, I was yeah. like, you know, I'm telling you cause I love you, but I know, I know that's what you mean too, but on the grander scale, you know, that there's, it's true. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm an enormous fan of social media and, and, and it, it taps into a, a whole different side of part of my, the, my, the creativity in my, in my brain, if I had to see it as a job, like, oh my God, I got to sit down and do it 15 minutes on Twitter. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I can't, it, it's the, uh, you're the first person to speak about the, the connectivity. So many people say that it, it pushes us apart, but I have that same childlike, man, that is an awesome poem. Or, you know, I really like that article. And then, you know, I'll write them or, you know, fire off an email or you know, a, a tweet. You know, I've written on Instagram like, hey, man, I know this probably looks childish, but I just want to tell you how much I appreciate what you do. And, Jack, I've never had anybody write back and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did it. You know, when you write something and, and when you're genuine about it, you know, like, look, I don't want anything. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate this. And I know you've gotten those messages. That's how I found you. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, it, you know, you, you can – do you find that you're able to see just not on the words, between the words, like when somebody's being genuine with you, you know, in the way that you write them, that it makes that helps forge that 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 connection to be stronger. Oh, definitely, and you can tell when someone's selfless in it, and they don't follow it up with a link to purchase their book or yeah, with, uh, yeah. with a kind of uh, an ask to say, "Hey, will you take a look at some of my poems?" And I, but I do know there are editors on on Twitter who just get bombarded with that stuff. They, right. uh, you put themselves out there, and the next thing you know, there are people sending you books to edit and things. Um, but I, I think, like most things in life, I mean, you do reap what you sow. And if you're on yep. there, I, I always try to make it a point to, at the end of the day, have said, you know, have complimented or amplified other writers more than I've done anything for myself. Then as long as every day I can get to the ledger and it's, I, I did more to make other people's message louder than my own. I can live myself with that. And I think that comes back to me in the sense that people realize, okay, he, you know, he tweeted four times about my poem and once about his own poem. Then, then probably they lay off me a little bit about, uh, the people don't hit me so much about, Hey, check out my stuff. Hey, check out my stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And w the obligation that I feel on Twitter, particularly Facebook to a degree, but Twitter particularly is to the publishers of my poems that, it's the least I can do to show appreciation for the fact that they gave my poem a home to, to, uh, to say, Hey, people, if, if you guys get a second, check this journal out. Cause this journal is dynamite and, and not just my poem, but check the other poems out because it's worth your day. Uh, I mean, heck, that's the least I can do. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm not trying to jump in, but I'm about to come out of my seat. I, I mean, I, I, I passionately, agree with what you're saying and it and you say that and again it's not throwing stones at anybody else but it's amazing how many people don't even think to do and i mean and, and it's like wanting to get an award for something you're supposed to do like chris rock the comedian who said like you know i feed my kids well i'm not gonna give you a gold star for feeding your kids because you're supposed to you know right, right. it's uh, you know when you talk about you know it and it's not i mean again i wouldn't pat myself on the back for this it's like you know it's it's like wearing clean clothes to work. You're supposed to. When I say this, you know, a journal comes out with you, Matt, with it, with your piece, and you know, to, to 
to not announce it. Of course, you're couched in there. Hey, my poems in this magazine. But, you know, I, I don't think any of us ever submit to a magazine that we don't really respect. And so it's that natural, like, these guys are awesome. This magazine is on point. Y'all check this out. Um, it all feeds back, I think, on a greater scheme as the, the selflessness that you express. And I'm in no way saying that I know exactly where you're coming from or, you know, exactly what you're thinking. But there, does it help feed your creativity to, to put so much positivity into the world and, and, and to make other people feeling good? Did, does it help your creative process and, and your imagination to, to be that giving? I just know it helps me get through the day every day. And right. part of that, part of that, um, uh, what helps me the most in that is, is building a community of people I can trust and writers who will write with me and, and who will go off and, you know, get in a coffee shop with me and write and do sessions with me, go on a marathon, write, uh, you know, for a weekend or a week, like we do at the New Orleans writing marathon. That's what, that's where being positive and being, and focusing on other people helps me because I think people are willing to work with me like that. And I do know that every time when I, if, if I woke up dreading what I had to do that day, then I'm probably not going to do a whole lot. So if I wake up thinking what, you know, what can I do on a positive way, not just for myself, but for everybody in my family, everybody I come in contact with, man, it just, it, it helps everything. It's not just about writing poems. It's, it, it, it's every little bit of my life. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to make I don't want to turn Buddhist on you, but uh, but man, I, I think that we can speak some negativity into the world if we're always whining and bad things will happen to us. If we're always complaining, it's, we're just opening the door for that stuff. So yeah, the more positive I can be, the more praise I can heap on others. I think it just keeps the day rolling downhill for me. I think this is something we've heard multiple times come up, which is just the yeah. power of building a community, not making it just about you, making it about the, the scene, making it about the people and helping everybody rise up together. Um, and it, it's great hearing hearing you kind of say that in, in such a an elegant way. I think that's that's something. Now, your... Um, so your position as in uh, Louisiana as poet laureate has a lot to do with uh, has a lot to do with uh, from what I understand it's not about you standing up there and being edified although it is an honor it is really about you raising people up I mean it's it's kind of your job you're appointed to do that uh, could you speak a little bit about that and how uh, how Louisiana has received your efforts and what you're seeing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing I said about it when someone asked me, the first interview I did after I was named Poet Laureate was, this isn't an, an honor. I don't see this as an honor. It's not a laurel. It's a call to duty. Yeah. I mean, they did, there's so many better poets from Louisiana. Yasef Kamenyaka, uh Shoot, I mentioned Jericho Brown earlier. Cheryl St. Germain. There's tons of poets that are Louisianians who if it was just an honor, we could pin a ribbon to them. They deserve it. Uh, but I'm here on the ground and I'm what I'm ready to work. And I think that's what it is. It's okay. It's your turn. Here's the ball. Go. And there's the hole hit it. And, um, that's how, that's how I approached my two year term. And I can't, I don't know how people responded to it. I, I just know that everywhere I went, I didn't have to make an active poetry community. Man, people are uh, 
people are crazy for poetry these days. Spoken word poetry, the print-bound poetry, performance poetry. It's everywhere, and we have never been in my lifetime, 53 years I've been alive, I have never lived through a period where we need people's voices more than we need them right now. And mm -hmm. thankfully, they seem to be ready to warm their voice up and get to singing. And I experienced that everywhere I went in Louisiana, and it was a blessing to be a little part of it. And every chance I got to uh, to do a newspaper interview or a radio interview, I took it because it gave me a chance to say other people's names, to let people know that this that this is a state that's just overrun with storytellers and poets and fiction writers. And, and I couldn't be prouder to be from where I'm from. And given two years of a running start to, to brag on people, I took every advantage I could take. Sounds like they made the right choice for, uh, for someone to step into that role. I can see why they made the decision. Do you, uh, now do you have a, another piece for us? Don't you? Sure. I can read a, I, I can read a piece. One of the, I can read one of the environmental pieces from No Brother the Storm. Perfect. That'd be awesome. Yeah, this is uh, actually a poem written. It's going to sound like it's written after Katrina or something like that and storm damage, but it's really not. It's about in uh, East New Orleans, uh, a project that they took took underway to restore some of the marshland by dumping old Christmas trees into the marsh. And you can see the footage of it uh, on old news footage of the Army Corps of Engineers dumping these old Christmas trees out there and building a marsh. And really, this poem is about that effort and, and how successful they were at putting back so much loss. And it was a kind of key moment in the, in the book for me. Uh, this poem is called Breakwater. It's not recovery. No way to lure coastline back into place. Recall silt already gone to golf. It's more like conception as helicopters lift piles of Christmas trees into air, drop them in bundles along the marsh line. Reeds will grow in soil trapped here. Shrimp will hide as these ponds fill in. Ducks will land in flocks to feed. All new gifts against the water's need. Wow. That is, that is so good, man. That is so good, man. So, so Jack, I, I have a, a question here for you. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of people who are poets, who are writers, and they'll, they'll call themselves aspiring writers and aspiring poets, but they really are from the moment they start doing it, uh, as well as musicians and just creative people. If you if you were able to give advice to someone who's listening to this who maybe isn't familiar with your work and, and you know, doesn't have the opportunity to come take a course from you, what what would you... Uh, what you know? advice could you impart to them about their creative journey, their creative life? Well, the easy advice that everyone gives is, well, read, but I'm going to go another way with that. I, I'm going to say, write. You know, mm. go find a community, find like-minded people wh wherever they are, or if you can't, find a place. You know, If you're more private than that and you're a little more introverted than that, that's fine, but find a place that's home to you, that's that's safe to you, and sit down and fill the page up because like great writers have said in the past, you can't edit a blank page. And we, we've got to get, give ourselves permission to write poorly. There's no way to write better unless we write, uh, you know, we've written poorly first. So my advice to young writers, uh, we're all aspiring writers, like you said, and, and we're all on the way to becoming 
hopefully better than we are at this present moment. So you can't let any of that slow you down or bog you down. Get to it right. And if you can find energy off other writers and being in a community like that and support and feedback, it all helps you to become a better person. Uh, it's hard to do any of that. It's not impossible, but it's hard to do any of that in isolation and to get the energy and to get the immediacy of, of working with others and being part of something together with others. But if you can't, if whatever reason you can't do that, at least find a place that gives you that kind of comfort and that kind of security and feedback and utilize it and get the words on the page. Uh, you, you, whatever stories you have to tell, you, you owe it to those stories and you owe it to yourself and you owe it to other people to, to celebrate those stories, to archive them, to honor them and do it as often as you can. Don't be stingy with it. And also don't judge yourself. There's no point in doing that. That's someone else's job. Somebody else makes their living doing that kind of stuff. Produce and let it sort itself out you know, later on down the line. And that, that's my main advice. Don't hold back because you're not good enough. Don't hold back because you think you're going to ruin it. You, you got to get it down. And nothing ever comes from nothing. So that's, that's my main advice. Get it on the page. Both Cliff and I want to say thank you for spending your time with us. We also want to say thank you to Jack Bedell for a great interview. This one really hit home for me. I hope it was inspirational for you as well. If you want to find Jack, you can find him at jackbbedell.com. The music for this episode was provided by the fantastic Justin Johnson. You can find him at justinjohnsonlive.com. Until next time, remember to be courageous. Do the hard work. Conquer your obstacles creatively. Learn to trust your heart. For it's easy to lose our path in this business of music and poetry. <laughs> <laughs>